There are many people in the Bible whose names give us a clue to their ultimate destiny. And sometimes these names uh, might be seen to be a little bit different than the modern conventions around naming. Some of these names were given directly by God. Who can forget, for example, Mayher Shalel Hashbaz? Uh, a little bit of a mouthful uh, from my perspective, even for someone who named his child Alexander Cunningham Magnuson. But uh, Mayher Shalel Hashbaz uh, has an even greater than that. Do you know what Meher Shalel Hashbaz means? It means hasting to the booty, swift to the prey. Hasting to the plunder, swift to the prey. And of course, you remember from perhaps from Isaiah chapter 8, God gives, tells Isaiah to name his child, Meher Shalel Hashbaz, to express the swift move to the uh, plunder of the people of Israel. Who can forget Lo Ruhama? Lo Ruhama, the daughter, the the second born of Hosea the prophet by the prostitute Gomer. And Lo Ruhama's name means no mercy. Now I wonder what that meant when Hosea first introduced no mercy, little cute little no mercy to his family. I, uh, uh, my wife has born a cute little no mercy. Here she is. I, I, I don't, uh, I, that must have been an interesting time. And of course, I also thought of, uh, of our good friend Nabal. I wonder what his parents were thinking when they named him Fool. Uh, I don't know. He certainly lived up to his name. Uh, and uh, that was as his own wife recognized, a particularly notable part of the story. Yes, that's his name, and that's who he is, and I know because I've been with him for a while. Uh, yeah, not a, not a good thing, but in any event, I think of thought of that because the woman we'll be looking at tonight has a very interesting name that defines a lot of what we know in her about in the Bible. The word, the name Hagar, means literally flight, as in to flee. And Hagar's life, in large part of what we see in the Bible, is defined by two flights. One flight that is voluntary. She is fleeing from an abusive mistress, Sarah. The second is, in a sense, involuntary. She is kicked out of the house by Abraham. These two flights are central to her character and her destiny and what we know of her in the Bible. And in particular tonight, I'd like to look at this first flight, a voluntary flight where she is running away from a woman who has cruelly treated her as a slave, Sarah, the wife of Abraham. And perhaps this story is best known for hearing the name that Hagar gives to God. You, God, see me. Elroy, you, God, see me. And yet there is, I think, in this story, some really significant information for us in not only the way that God deals with those like Hagar who are broken, but the way in which he calls us to encourage and comfort and sometimes to challenge those who are broken in their own way. The title of the message tonight is The God Who Sees and Oversees. 
the God who sees and oversees. And I want to start this evening by looking at Hagar's crisis. Hagar's crisis. We looked this morning at a man who was in his own crisis, a leper, one who was a social outcast. Tonight we look at another person in crisis, but this one in a much less long-lasting crisis, a one in a more immediate crisis. Let's start in Genesis 16, shall we? If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to have them open. And let's look at verse 1. Now Sarah, Sarai, Abram's wife, bare him no children. Of course, this is such a central theme of this portion of the book of Genesis. And she had a handmaid, an Egyptian, whose name was Hagar. Now, she is an Egyptian, so she is not of the land of Canaan. Now, where would, uh, where would Sarah and Abraham have picked up an Egyptian slave? This is what she was. She was a slave. You, if you were to go back only a few chapters to Genesis 12, you would see that Abraham had been sojourning in the land of Egypt with his wife Sarah. Remember, that was the awful episode where Sarah's a beautiful woman and Abraham says she's my sister and puts her a life in great danger at great risk and he's reproved. It's perhaps likely at that point in their life that Sarah had acquired or had come, perhaps the king of Egypt had had played a role in this, um, that she would have this likely young female slave in Egyptian. Now notice that in this way she was entirely powerless. She's not connected by family or blood to Abraham and Sarah. She is a slave, so she has no real rights at the time. She is entirely at the mercy of Abraham and Sarah. And now that Abraham and Sarah are in the land of Canaan, in what would become the promised land, she is disconnected from family. She's disconnected from any source or security she had. She is powerless. Now notice then in verse 2, Sarah says to Abraham, Behold now, The Lord hath restrained me from bearing. Notice she is putting that on God. God has restrained me from bearing. I pray thee, go in unto my maid. Take my slave as your wife or your concubine. It may be that I may obtain children by her. Now this was an ancient form of surrogate bearing. We hear today of surrogate parenting. This was a form of surrogate parenting involving a female slave in the house who would bear a child and it would become the mistress's child. It would become the missus' uh, child of the house. And Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. Now that was, of course, a lack of leadership on Abram's part. He was the one who had received a promise of God. He should have recognized that this would not have been God's intent for him. God, don't forget, Jesus said from the beginning, it was intended to be a one-man, one-woman relationship. But nonetheless, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, after Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. Now, again, think about this. The scripture tells us they had been 10 years in the land of Canaan. Why is that relevant? 
Well, think about if you're Abraham. You have received the promise of God to go where he tells you, and I'm going to raise up a multitude to you. That promise is confirmed to him, and now you have been in the land where God told you to go for 10 years, and there's no baby. And now you're Sarah, and you're old. You're, you're certainly elderly past the time of bearing. Abraham is getting on in years. And Sarah now is impatient. She says, let's have it a baby through another means. Now verse, uh, now verse four says, he went in unto Hagar and she conceived. Their union resulted in conception. And when she saw that she had conceived, that's Hagar, her mistress, that's Sarah, was despised in her eyes. And you say, what's going on here? Well, think about the natural question for Sarah and Abraham. Sarah had said, the Lord hath restrained me from bearing. But don't you think she had a wonder in her mind whether it was Abraham's fault? It might have been Abraham who was infertile. He may have been the one who was the problem all along. Sarah had this, this stigma associated with being barren, with being a woman who could not produce a male heir for her husband, this stigma. And now she realizes conclusively that it is her. It's not Abraham, because Abraham conceived with her slave. So now the weight just comes crushing on her. And not only that, now Hagar says, yeah, it was her all along. She couldn't have a baby. I can. The roles, in a sense, are reversed. The powerless one now presumes to have some amount of of power. In other words, the woman who had been Sarah's slave was now her competition, was now the one who was in a relationship that indeed was usurping Sarah in a very painful way. Now, this is just, uh, should not be surprising that we see in verse number five how Sarah responds. Sarah, I said unto Abram, my wrong be upon thee. Now, what's she saying? She's saying, I'm being mistreated. I am being wronged, and it's your fault, Abram. It's your fault. Now, she says, I have given my maid into your bosom. And when she saw that she had conceived, I was despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and you. Now, Sarah was the one who, who, who suggested in the first place. And yet now she has perceived this great pain with being now this, her, her, her source, her sense of barrenness being so much stronger now that she has this competitor who has been able to conceive even at Sarah's suggestion and listen to what Abram says to Sarah. Behold, thy maid is in thy hand. Do to her as it pleases thee. Abram frankly probably saw there was no winning. There was no winning here. He could not have really been in a situation where his leadership would have produced something. He still should have exercised leadership, to be clear. But he probably just was throwing his hands up and saying, there's no good outcome here. We'll notice what Sarah's response is. And when Sarai dealt hardly with her, that's Hagar, she, Hagar, fled from her face. Now that word hardly is an interesting one. It literally means to depress it has the idea of humbling. It has the idea of shoving down. It has almost the idea of sticking someone's face into the ground. That's the idea. It just literally means depress. 
Now think about what Sarai is doing here to this slave that she perceives as getting a little too big for her britches, as now being competition, as someone now who has success where Sarai perceives her own experience as failure. It is not surprising that in that power dynamic, Sarai begins to cruelly treat her. One commentator says it's not even beyond this word um, to suggest that it could have been physical mistreatment. It could have been along the forms of striking or other things that Sarai was doing. Now, I just want to point out one thing. This, again, should not be surprising given the violation of God's ordinance for marriage, but it also is actually a real clue into why we so often as fallen human beings fall into these kinds of relational difficulties. Because so often, if you notice, when two people are really falling into a cycle of contention, it is actually involving our own hurts and our own insecurities. This is something we saw in our um, seminar, Love and Respect. So often the difficulties between a husband and a wife come when the wife or the husband acts in a certain way that triggers uh, an insecurity in one spouse and then the other spouse responds in a way that triggers a corresponding insecurity in the other one and it becomes, as, as Emerson Egerich puts it, the crazy cycle. It is so true, at not just in a husband and wife relationship, but so often, if we really would step back and try to understand what our word or our conduct may have triggered in the other person, we'd understand why they reacted the way they did. And we'd be able to give grace even to their overreaction or to their provocation and be able to overlook something that has triggered our own insecurity or our own hurt or our own wound. And, and then it results in a massive explosion. This is just a very common thing that we see in this conflict. But nonetheless, we can't uh, minimize what this was doing to Hagar, an entirely powerless woman, a woman who had vi virtually no agency in this situation. She is being cruelly treated. She is being abused in this power imbalance by her mistress, Sarai. And so what does she do? She leaves. She flees. That's the meaning of her name. She departs. Hagar hits the road. Don't forget, she's pregnant. She's pregnant. And off she goes. Now notice, where is she going? Verse 7 says, And the angel of the Lord found her by a fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. Now again, these ge ge geographic terms probably mean nothing to us. If you trace where she was going, she was almost certainly going back to Egypt. She was tracing the route back through desert to get to her homeland to get to Egypt. Now that's natural, right? That's likely where she would have gone. That was the place she remembered. She's running. And notice, what I want to see secondly, is God's command. Not just Hagar's crisis, but God's command. Notice, first of all, God finds her. He finds her in the sense that he is looking for her. Now this is says in verse number seven, the angel of the Lord found her. The angel of the Lord. Now, this, is an, this is, appears to be a theophany. Well, a theophany is an appearance of God himself. We know that because this is what Hagar describes it. She says, I have seen him who sees me. She is referring to her view of God himself. 
That's why this is, uh, the position has often been taken that this is a pre-incarnate ver- view of Jesus Christ. This was Jesus Christ himself appearing to her, the Son of God in pre-incarnate form. This is, would be the first time that Jesus appeared to a person in all of the Bible. He finds her at a well where she is seated. But notice not only does he find her, he engages her. Notice the question that God asks. Whence camest thou? Notice first he says, Hagar. He calls her by her name. This powerless Egyptian slave, he identifies her by name. Hagar, Sarai's maid. Notice what he says. Whence camest thou? From where are you coming? And whither wilt thou go? Where are you going? And notice what she responds. I flee from the face of my mistress Sarai. Now, which God asked her two questions. Which one did she answer? She answered where she was coming from. Did she answer where she was going? She didn't know. She was just fleeing. She could say, I'm coming from my mistress Sarai. But she couldn't say where she was going because she didn't know. And everything that was ahead of her was desert. You could go down to that geography around on the way to Shur and you would see, this is wilderness. This is barren. Now, isn't it interesting that's just like God sometimes to freeze us in our tracks with a question we can't answer? Here was a woman who was suffering, who had been mistreated. And the question that stops her in her tracks is not just where are you coming from, but Hagar, where do you think you're going? And here this woman, perhaps who had acted impetuously, has no answer. Praise God that through the word and through the spirit, sometimes he breaks into our perhaps impetuosity or our crises with questions that stop us in our tracks. But notice then here in verse 9. The angel of the Lord said unto her, return to thy mistress and submit thyself under her hands. And I want to pause there because if you want to stop a modern person in their tracks, read them that command. Read them the circumstances of this provision. You have a foreign slave who is utterly powerless and without agency. She is being abused and mistreated by the woman who has all the power in the situation, Sarai. God meets her when she is fleeing and says, stop and go back. Not only go back, submit under the same person who has been mistreating you. In fact, there's a piece of the Hebrew that we need to know here. When God says, submit It's the exact same Hebrew word that was used to say Sarai dealt hardly with her. Same word, hardly submit. In other words, God's saying, go back to the same treatment that had been humbling you and this time make it voluntary. You submit, you humble yourself to it. Now again, does something in your spirit, in the cultural and societal waters that we've been swimming in say, that doesn't sound like God. That doesn't sound like something that, that, that we should be celebrating. How could God tell an abused slave to go back and submit to the woman who had been mistreating her? 
In fact, there has been a blast uh, in many ways across our world of dealing with how employers deal with employees. You may have heard Prince Harry, the uh, erstwhile member of the royal family, uh, uh, recently counseled people. He had an interview. He said, many people around the world have been stuck in jobs that didn't bring them joy, and now they are putting their mental health and happiness first. This is something to be celebrated. Well, there was maybe a little bit of irony that this was someone from the royal family who was encouraging people, if you want to quit your job, go for it. He probably hasn't had to struggle with some of the challenges that people in working positions face in their lives. But whatever the point, this kind of idea, your job is for your happiness and for your joy. And if you're not happy, then leave. Your relationships, your friendships are for your happiness. And if you don't like them, leave. Your marriage is for your happiness. And if you're not happy, leave, flee. The idea that, that God would tell an unhappy person in a particular situation of life to return to the source of unhappiness and submit under it just really has to be dissonant with so much not only of our modern approach but even of what we hear in our Christian circles, that there is this kind of suffering or unhappiness to flee. So my question for us tonight is, why does God give her this command and what does it mean for us? Does it mean something? Does it mean anything for us? How are we to deal with our own bouts of suffering? Well, we can't not understand God's command for Hagar, a woman who's suffering, a woman who's been mistreated, a woman who's been miserable, unless we understand, thirdly, God's comfort for Hagar. We cannot divorce these two things. God's command goes side by side with God's comfort. Notice what the angel says to her after verse 9, return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hands. Verse 10, the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly that it shall not be numbered for multitude. Here is God's promise directly to her. Now, who was the one who had received God's promise of a multiplied seed this, to this point? Who had received it? Abraham. Abraham was the one who shared it with Sarah. Now, Hagar directly receives God's promise. In other words, God was telling you this. Your life has purpose. Your life has value. From you, Hagar, Egyptian slave, mistreated, despised, you have purpose. Out of you will come a multitude of people. It won't even be able to be numbered. That's pretty special in terms of this message. But notice also if you then go to verse 11, and the angel of the Lord said unto her, behold, thou art with child, you're pregnant, and shalt bear a son, and shalt call his name Ishmael, listen, because the Lord hath heard thy affliction. Do you know what the name Ishmael means? God hears. Can you imagine what a comfort that would have been to Hagar? going back to a place where she had been so mistreated and had suffered wrong at the hands of Sarai, and she has a baby in that hostile household, 
and she names, and Abram names the baby, God hears. At any point in the future, had she suffered under Sarai's hands again, she would have looked at her son and she would have said, God hears. God hears my affliction. In other words, God was not just promising her. He was memorializing something about her and about her affliction. He was giving her the name of a promised, precious son that would remind her of his goodness and faithfulness over her. Now notice how God describes Ishmael, will you? We might let these, verse, these words just pass by. Verse 12 says, and he will be a wild man. A wild man. Now, there's something about this that we need to understand. That word for wild actually literally means wild ass or wild donkey. Do you know God is literally saying about Ishmael, Ishmael's going to be a wild donkey kind of guy. A wild donkey man. I mean, I, someone described me as a wild donkey man. I feel like that would be, I, I, yeah, be, kind of be very interesting, wouldn't it? A wild donkey kind of guy. No, what, is, what does that mean? A wild donkey was someone who ran free. This would kind of be like a wild Mustang, right? Think about what God's saying to a slave. Your son is gonna be a run-free kind of guy. He's gonna be a guy who is liberated. He's not gonna live your slave life, Hagar. I really think that's what God was testifying to her. And notice he says, his hand will be against every man and every man's hand against him and he shall dwell in the presence of his brethren, of all his brethren. She is giving comfort. God is giving comfort to Hagar, not just about his hearing of her, but about the destiny of her own son that it will not match hers. She has purpose. She has value. And notice what she, how she responds. Verse 13, immediately after this, and she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, thou God seest me. For she said, have I also here looked after him that seeth me? The idea, it seems, we could interpret this phrase in many ways. It's a little bit mysterious. I think what she's saying is she's effectively saying, God, have I... Have I actually seen the one who has been watching over me? Who has been seeing me this whole time? It could be one of wonder and incredulousness. I can't believe it. I actually saw the one who's been seeing me. She also might be saying, I saw the one who's been seeing me and I'm not dead. Whatever it is, here is a woman who is awed who has been brought into a new kind of relationship with the God that Abraham worshipped. Here is a woman that has had a particular kind of connection with God that even surpasses what Sarah had experienced to this point. She had been brought into relationship with God. By the way, this is the first time that a human being in the Bible gives a name to God. Hagar. Hagar is the first person that we read of, at least if, if I'm understanding it correctly, that looks up and is able to give a special name, if you will, to the God that saw her, El Roy. In other words, what God is doing is he is equipping her. He is equipping her for whatever she will be experiencing in her time of suffering by revealing himself to her and allowing her to say, there is a God who sees me, there is a God who hears my affliction, and there is a God who has plans for me 
and for my child. You cannot separate God's command, return, go submit to the same suffering you've been going through from God's comfort of promise to her and of equipping of her to encourage her in the path that he has for her. Now, just a postscript here. It's interesting for me here that in verse number 15, Abraham called his son's name, which Hagar bare Ishmael. Do you know what that means? Hagar not only returned, she told Abraham and Sarah exactly what happened. I ran. God met me. He gave me these promises. He told me to return and submit. And he told me to name this child Ishmael. And Abram did it. Now, I don't know whether we can read too much into it, but do you know that for a period of 13 years until the conflict rose again between Hagar and Ishmael and Sarah and Isaac, do you know we have no incidents of mistreatment provided from Sarah to Hagar? I I don't know that that's conclusive evidence, but it also wouldn't surprise me because it's scripture itself that tells us in Romans chapter 12, dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, feed him. If he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. And there can be a power in the face of suffering to submit to that suffering in a way that is overcoming evil with good in in a way that is even allowing that suffering to be minimized or God to get a hold of that person's life. Again, I don't think we can say conclusively that this occurred, but it is at least notable, I think, that we read of no other incidents for another 13 years. What does this mean for us today? We are not in a position where we are Hagar physically or literally a a, a slave, I think. What does it mean for our suffering? I just want to make a couple comments. First of all, for Hagar's. No, I don't mean physical Hagar's. I mean, you are going through suffering right now. You're going through difficulty and it may be something that someone else is inflicting on you in a particular way, you are afflicted. And it may be in your job, it may be in your relationships, it may be in your marriage or in some other aspect that you are experiencing this kind. What we need to see is the same thing that Hagar saw, that there is a God who hears our afflictions. That is the number one thing that God is communicating to Hagar. Hagar, I am here and I hear and I see. Not only does God see your suffering, but God has value and purpose in it. God has something for you. As we think of in Jeremiah, when God is speaking to these these Israelites that are in Babylon, in captivity, who have been absolutely crushed and broken by the consequences of their own sin, and God says to them, I know the plans I have for you. I know the plans that I have for you. And in that same way, by implication, we can say that God has plans. He knows the plans for those who are broken, who are suffering, and he has value that he is attributing even to those who don't always see the value 
in ourselves. And the final thing is this. When God calls us to go through suffering, to submit under difficulty and challenge, he will equip us. He will equip us to accomplish his purposes by his comfort and his encouragement, just as he did with Hagar, giving her that strength to persevere and to return even in the face of suffering. So notice this encouragement that God gives to those who are called to bring about or, or, or submit under suffering. But the second point I want to just comment on briefly is perhaps we are not Hagar ourselves today. We're not in that position of suffering, but perhaps someone we know is. Perhaps we are like the angel of the Lord, the instrument of God meeting someone in their suffering, in their difficulty, in their challenge. I want to just make these points. It is true that sometimes God calls those who are suffering to flee, like Hagar did. Hagar's name meant flight. In fact, not only in this case, in this case, Hagar was called to return. But what happened 13 years later? Hagar was called to depart. It was time for her to leave. It was time for her to go. That conflict had met its end point and she was to leave. We see at other places in the Bible, God's people are not always commanded to, to hang on under suffering, particularly evil that is being performed under them. We see examples in scripture where God's people have fled in the face of suffering, fled in the face of particular kinds of abuses. So I, what I don't want you to hear me saying today is that this is a command of God for every situation, for every kind of example. And again, in my view, I think this is particularly important when others are being brought in to, to, to suffering, or when uh, particularly, I think, when there is a kind of, of a criminal example, I think of Romans chapter 13 tells us that God has given the sword to punish wrongdoing. It, the justice of God is meted out by those who are engaged in criminal kinds of wrongdoing. I think absolutely there's an important place and a place where we are justified and righteous and appropriate in, in, in seeking to bring about that sword. But the only thing I want to say is in response to our cultural moment today is that God does not always call us to step out of suffering. He does not always call us to flee when we are being mistreated. Here is an example and we can see an example elsewhere. Just recently we came across Matthew chapter 16 in our Bible reading together. And I was struck, particularly when I was already meditating on this passage, thinking to preach on it. And I just encourage you to turn over to Matthew chapter 16 for just a moment. Matthew chapter 16. Peter has just given the wonderful pronouncement that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the Christ. And, and, and the son of the living God and Jesus tells him flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. My father, which is in heaven, has revealed this to you. And notice with me verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him. 
saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art in offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Now, have you ever wondered why Jesus responded so harshly? He called one of his closest disciples, Satan, get behind me, Satan. The word Satan means adversary, enemy. Get behind me. And then notice what he said. You are an offense to me. That word offense is the word stumbling block. You are trying to trip me up. You are a trap to me. In other words, what was going on here was that Jesus was being confronted again with a temptation that Satan had brought him at the very beginning of his ministry. Fall down and worship me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. It was the temptation to avoid the cross. The temptation to avoid suffering. The temptation to go about it a different way. And, and, and Jesus saw that in that moment, Simon Peter was acting on behalf of his enemy. Satan and he said you are trying to trip me up you are a stumbling block to me why because you savor not the things you are savoring you are not delighting in the things that be of God but those that be of men now friends I simply want to make this point we have to be very cautious that in our own life or in the lives of others that when we are seeking to step out of difficulty, whatever kind of difficulty that is, wherever God has placed us, we might be taking the side of Satan. We may be an offense. We may be a stumbling block in a way that God intends to bring me or someone else through in order to accomplish his purposes and reveal something about himself to that person. Now, what is the answer then? What is the answer to my own suffering or to the suffering of someone I love who I am seeking to influence and encourage? Notice the very next verse, what Jesus said. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, and whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. You see, what I'm suggesting tonight is that in our own suffering and in the suffering of those we love, we should be very cautious of saying on the one hand, oh, absolutely flee, get away from it. And we should be very cautious on the other hand of saying, no, you're required to stay under it. What should be our counsel? What should be our comfort? Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Where is Jesus in this situation? What is he calling you to do? What is the purpose that is savoring the things that be of God and not the things that, that, that are savoring those of men? What are the example here? What is the teaching that God has for you? The simple point is God has value and purpose in the lives of those and including in the suffering of ourselves and those that are around us. And when we take up our cross and deny ourselves and commit to following him wherever, we have, wherever he leads, we can have confidence that he is going to lead us 
in the way that he wants us to go. Whether that is like was said to Hagar, return and submit and I will be with you. Or whether that is to continue and persevere, or I should say, or whether that is to remove ourselves in a particular kind of situation. Recognize that there is a value that God has and that is repeated for us over and over in scripture of the suffering for his sake due to following him that brings great rewards in heaven and brings the greatest purpose, a great purpose that we can have as well as the kind of liberty that sometimes he gives to step away. Again, what Hagar shows us is that there is a God who sees and there is a God who oversees, a God who sees to bring comfort and encouragement for those who are distressed, and a God who oversees to direct in ways that will be for our long-term good and for his glory. And may we see in the life of Hagar that not only when the, in, the, in the suffering that we're facing today, we can experience his incredible comfort, but in what he calls us to do, whatever that is, whatever that looks like, he will empower and equip us because as we know, all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to his purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as Hagar could say, have I looked after the one who sees me? Father, suffering is something that you allow for your people. It is sometimes something that you even direct your people through so that we may be, have, have a, a revelation of you to us in a new way, that we might fulfill your purposes for our life. And oh, I pray for wisdom and sensitivity for each one of us, us who are going through our own period of suffering, that we may know in a new way what it is to deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. Whatever the way you're leading, whatever direction that is, Father, we need your leading. We need to savor those things that be of God and not those things that be of men.